Well, there's an awful lot to give glory hallelujah to, is there not? Let me invite your attention to Acts chapter 17. As you're turning there, I want to tell you about a mother and her two daughters and their friend. <clears throat> the uh, teenage daughter and the nine-year-old daughter had a Christmas program on the same evening. Uh, that threw her into a panic until she discovered the teenage daughter's Christmas program in which she was involved uh, was to start an hour later. The nine-year-old insisted that she had a solo in the children's Christmas program at her elementary school, and she was to sing Silent Night. Her mother was a bit skeptical because the young, young girl had really been tone deaf all of her life. She'd improved through the years, but not quite to where she thought she was ready for a solo in that big a production. And uh, so she um, carried the girl to uh, her Christmas program, and in a few moments her teacher came out with the nine-year-old, and the nine-year-old was weeping. She got all the details wrong, and the teacher was so apologetic, she said, I'm, I'm sorry, but she wasn't even selected for the choir, and, and we don't have room for another solo. And the girl was just crying, and she said, Mama, I want to leave. Can we go someplace? And she said, I want to go hear my sister and her friend in their Christmas program at the high school. And so she left, and they arrived, and they arrived in, uh, real early to the high school Christmas program. The teenage daughter and her friend saw them real quickly and came out and said, what are you doing here? You're here too early. And she explained what happened, that the nine-year-old got all the details wrong. And so the two teenage girls grabbed the nine-year-old and said, well, come on backstage and come meet our friends. And so she got to go backstage and uh, meet uh, all the cool kids in her mind. And so uh, she got back there and she didn't come out. And the program started and the mother's sitting in the audience alone and all of a sudden, the friend comes out for her solo. She's got a solo. Her teenage daughter's got a piano solo as well. But the friend comes out to sing her solo. But before she does, she looks over off stage and she nods. And the nine-year-old comes out in front of this large crowd. And she starts singing Silent Night. And the friend, with her soprano voice, sings just loud enough with her to cover over any mistakes. Well, about the time they start singing, her teenage daughter comes and sits next to her and grabs her by the hand. And she said, well, why aren't you up there? You're about to have your piano solo. And she said, well, we didn't have enough room in the program, and so I cut my piano solo so the squirt could sing Silent Night. I wonder if it might not be a lovely Christmas season if all of the races could have that same spirit and compassion and servant nature towards one another all over the earth. Did you know Jesus Christ can produce that? Uh, Acts chapter 17 is going to help us this morning. In fact, because of that spirit, I want us to make uh, some commitments the first Sunday in January, January 3rd. I want to ask you to create a plan to expand your circle of friends to include people from other races and ethnicities. If you've already done that, let's do some more. If you haven't, what's keeping you? It's been a while. It's time to get busy. Second, I want us to pray for the gospel to advance among all the races and ethnicities. We've got to connect prayer to this. Then I want you to participate in discipleship training on Wednesday nights. If you want to become more like Christ in this area and others, we'll take the first few months of 2016 to study that on Wednesday nights and to participate in discipleship training at 4 and at 6 for that purpose. 
Then support Beach Haven with tithes and offerings. We are seeking to reach the entire globe, but not just the globe. We're not going to be hypocritical and reach other races and ethnicities around the globe and ignore those that are here. We're going to reach them as well. And that's the kind of heart Beach Haven has. And then if you've got Spanish language skills and will help us start a Spanish language Sunday school class for adults, I want to know about it January 3rd, and we want to work with you in helping to do that. Now, as you look at Acts chapter 17, you're going to find some marvelous help with this. Uh, Paul is in Athens, Greece, and he is declaring the gospel there, just in case you're wondering, but uh, he's declaring the gospel there to the Athenians, and the Athenians had something of a real significant racial pride about themselves. They thought of themselves as better than all the other races around the earth, and some of the snide and rude remarks from the ancient world about other races came from Athens and from the elite that were there. But here in this text, Paul related God with the races, and he made it very, very clear that race relations are a God issue. In other words, the horizontal always reveals the vertical, and it is impossible to be wrong with your brother or sister or other races and right with God at the same time. Those that are right with God should be right with one another. And Paul picks this up in verse number 26. We'll look at the entire message he preached there, but verse 26 He says of God that God has made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from one of us. God alone is hope for the races. The only hope that we have to have fellowship and peace and unity amongst the races in this nation and others happens to be God and God alone. Now, what is it about God that makes that the case? Well, several things that you find in the text. One, as commander, God instructs the races. As commander, God instructs the races. Now, he does so in this text. He communicates to the races this entire message, one of the lengthiest ones in the entire book of Acts. In verses 16 and 18, the need for instruction surfaces here. While Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was declaring the gospel of Christ and the content of this message to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, that's a remarkable thing. But God is not shy to tell the elite what to do. He is not shy about speaking in the imperative or commanding voice. God is the Lord, and He never asks anyone to do anything. He calls, commands, and charges them to do things. Now, these are some of the smartest people in all the earth. Athens was known for its education. Athens was exalted on the earth for its erudition, its sophistication, its cultural advance. And here, God takes Paul the missionary and declares the gospel and declares the word 
to them. In fact, if you look carefully at this speech and compare it with the Old Testament, you'll find that Paul's not really preaching a philosophy at all. What Paul is doing is that for these pagan philosophers, he is reconstructing a biblical doctrine of God, primarily from the book of Isaiah and from the book of Genesis, because that's precisely what they needed. And then he moves from there to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not unusual for God to speak to the erudite, to the sophisticated, to the powerful, and to the cultured through modest servants and people. Why is that? Because God is not shy to tell people what to do. God can use you to bring peace to the races and peace to the earth and peace in your own heart and life if you will look to His Word and not merely hear it, but surrender to it and yield it. And that is the only appropriate posture when it comes to the Word of God. God expects of people more than merely hearing the Word and knowing the Word. God calls all the earth to surrender, submit, and yield to the Word. And when we yield to the Word, my friends, we become instruments of peace in the hands of Almighty God. So as commander, he instructs the races. But there's a second thing. As sustainer, God supports the races. Verse number 25. He says, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed everything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is ruling over all creation so that all the races, no matter where they're located, have enough sustenance to live life. And where there might be lack in one area because of drought or some other cause, there is abundance in another area, and God expects sharing uh, on the part of those with abundance to those who do not have what they need. In other words, God has taken responsibility for all the races of the earth to provide for their needs. This is on his heart, this is on his mind, and this is what God does. So when you meet someone of another race, you not only meet someone that God is instructing. When you meet someone of another race, you are meeting someone that, for whom God has taken personal responsibility to care for them, to supply their needs, and to build them up in the life. In other words, if God were on the earth today, He would invite all around His dinner table and would feed them from His store, and I'm certain Christ would gird Himself in service with sweet manna all around. And so as sustainer, God supports the races. But there's a third thing. As creator, God unified the races. God in creation and in His creative wisdom unified the races. There was a number of years ago in Britain a bit of legislation that was bantered about by the parliament and by others and pundits and commentators and uh, social theorists uh, that they wanted to apply to Britain. And often the justification was that they needed to protect the pure British blood and the pure British race from mixture from other races. May I say to you, that is hematological medical nonsense. There is no such thing as pure Anglo blood or a pure Anglo race. It may come as a shock to you, but American and British Anglos and Anglos around the earth are actually a mixture of several races. Most Americans and most Brits are a mix of the Celts, the Goths, the Saxons, the Normans, and the Romans. In fact, 6% uh, 6 
of the blood of Afrikaners, white South Africans, is African itself. There is no such thing as pure racial blood. There is no such thing as a pure race. Beloved, I've got news for you. Every person on the earth is a Heinz 57 and mongrel. Every person on the earth. Do you know why? Well, there are many reasons for that, but we could point to verse number 26. God has made from one, and some translations read one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. God has unified in His wisdom the creation of all humans from one source, and that's Adam and Eve. And so I don't mean to go sister sledge on you, but we are family. I got all my sisters with me. We are family. Stand up, everybody, and sing. Well, maybe not, but Scripture teaches that we are genetically and biologically and otherwise one family. And so whenever there is an assumption of inferiority, from one person to the next on the basis of race or class or any other means? The truth is, is that that is an attack upon a family member. We are made from one. And so God in His wisdom has made us from one, from Adam and Eve. So to complain about differing races is to complain about God. The existence of races is the result of the handiwork of God. And when you encounter someone from another race, you're encountering someone that is the handiwork of God. And beloved, God doesn't make any junk. Every person is potentially a servant of Jesus Christ. Every person is potentially a member of His royal administration. Every person, every male is a prince. Every female is a princess. That is how God has made them. Now, I want to make sure you understand. That does not mean that every cultural practice is equal. Oh, no. Not at all. There's some things about Anglo culture that fall outside the will of God. There's some things about Asian culture that would as well. There's some things about all cultures that would as well. Culture is the creation of humans. Race is not the creation of of humans. Race is the creation of God. God made us the races, and God doesn't make any junk. But there's a fourth thing that the text uh, elevates, and that is, as king, God locates our races. Now, this is a remarkable thing in verse 26 and, uh, and on. It says that God, at the end of verse 26, has determined everyone's pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, where we live was orchestrated by God. And the time or century or years in which we live was determined by God. Let me be real gentle here and delicate, but your parents may not have planned you. May not have. I understand that. But God did. 
And God planned you to have you live here and at this time amongst these people under His care and with His love. You are not an accident. You are the handiwork of God and your time and location is the very work of God Himself. And so the racial mixture we find around the world and the racial mixture we find in the United States and the racial mixture we find in our own community is the handy work of God. Now I know that may surface a million questions, many of which I probably don't have an answer to, but we must take the mixture we have of races and classes and peoples and tribes and nations amongst us as the handiwork of God, and instead of being intimidated or uncomfortable, we need to be thankful to God for it. He locates our races. Now here's why he does it in verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. God has located the races in certain times and places to reach them with the gospel, not to enslave them, not to segregate them, not to divide them, but to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is on mission amongst the races of the earth to bring them to Christ where He's exalted His King and they are His servants in the kingdom. And may I say to you how you approach this issue will go a long ways towards your credibility as a witness. So as King, God locates the races. But then, in verses 32-32, we find another role that God plays and what He does with the races. And that is, as judge, God warns our races. God warns our races. He says, truly, these times of ignorance, especially about idolatry, God overlooked. And you know, God's been real patient with many of us. God's been very patient with us and overlooked a lot of foolishness on our part. He did with Adam and Eve. He threatened death that they ate from the fruit of the tree. And spiritually they died in the garden. But physically they did not. God did not execute or implement the full extent of the law and sentences when Adam and Eve sinned. And He hasn't done that with us either. That's why we're still breathing and not rotting in hell. And I must say to you, any day we're not in hell is a good day. Because we sure enough do deserve it. And so, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men to repent. They're straying from Him all over the earth. They're resisting His kingdom, and He tells them to turn around and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And here's why in verse 31. Because He's appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man. The man among men, the one that's exalted, the God-man, who He has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. There is a universalistic emphasis here in this text. It's highlighted. All men repent everywhere. He's given assurance to all, to the skeptic, to the one that believes in God, to the Muslim to the Hindu, Buddhist, and Jew, to the Christian who thinks he's saved, to all 
by raising him from the dead. He's given assurance that Jesus Christ will hold all races and all individuals accountable for repentance by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So when we encounter someone of another race, we encounter someone God will hold personally accountable and God is willing to save. Now, do you know what that means? If God is holding them personally accountable and is willing to save them, that means God knows an awful lot about every life. I remember the day when I gave my life to Jesus. Do you? I was in my bedroom as a 16-year-old kid, flatly disappointed with everything. I was on the West Coast at the time, and the Christian faith was not as prevalent there as it is here. And it, it just astounds me that that is where I came to Christ. I, I mean, God knew me and knew what I needed. And He was paying attention to that bedroom on the southwest corner of the house when I cried out to Him. That's been more than 30 years ago and I, I can't get over it. The, the president at the time did not know my need and did not know my name. The governor of the state at the time did not know my need or did not even know my name. The mayor of our town did not know my name or need. Frankly, a lot of school teachers that knew my name didn't know my need. I don't even think my family knew my need. But one whose name is higher and above them all did. And he condescended and entered into that place when I was on my disappointed knees and cried out to him and asked him to save me and to cancel my sins and to become the master and Lord of my life. Your king knows. Your king is intimately acquainted with your comings and goings when you go in and come out, when you lie down and rise up. He knows everything and it's meaningful to him and it's not a burden he knows everything for which he needs to hold you accountable he knows every sin that's been committed and he knows the way out and he's calling out to you today and all the earth everyone everywhere to repent to repent to turn Labrador, Canada is a remote place in Canada. It's hard to get in and hard to get out. Apparently there's just one road. And they finally built one and there is just one road into Labrador, Canada. And so there's only one way in, there's only one way out. And in order to get out, you've got to turn around. And to get out of the chaos and the hatred and the ugliness in which you're living in now. You've got to turn around and come out. You've got to make a decision to come out. A Scotsman by the name of Scotty was put in charge of a project and he was very vigorous in his work ethic and he expected everyone to be vigorous and after a couple of days he annoyed everyone. 
He worked hard, diligently, thoughtfully. He anticipated what needed to be done and stayed on top of it and barked out orders. And somebody finally said to Scotty, Scotty, Rome was not built in one day. And he snapped and said, of course, I wasn't in charge of that project. Just how much longer are you going to wait to repent and to change? How much longer? I mean, what else can God do? He's already declared the word. He's exalted His Son. He's told you of His love for the races. He's told you of His love for one another. He's made it very clear. His eternal affections for His Son, Jesus Christ. That's without doubt. I mean, what, what else is he going to do? I know of one Jewish convert who came to Christ who was fussed at by his rabbi for turning to Christ. And the young man asked him, he said, Well, Rabbi, when the Messiah does come, will he do anything different than Jesus did? I think there's enough credibility in Jesus Christ for all the earth to repent and rush to Him. And God commands us to do that today. Quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray about it. Lord God, we trust You that You are the Commander, Master, and Lord. And your word is worthy to be heard. We praise you that you're the sustainer. And God, you have done well to supply our need. And we realize when folks have gone without, it's not because there's a lack of supply, there's a lack of love on our part. We praise you that you're the creator. And thank you for making us all family. You are the king. And I want to thank you for placing me here in this time. Thank you that all my friends are here. And thank you for where you've placed others, our missionaries, our friends in other nations and nationalities and ethnicities that we don't know. Thank you for what you've done. And thank you as a good judge, you've taken time to warn and to call us to repent. Thank you that we can repent. And I want to pray for friends today that they would do so vigorously and vehemently and turn to Jesus Christ and say yes to Him. Others need to become part of Beach Haven, give them strength. Others need to surrender to missionary service or ministry, help them. Others need to conform more to the image of Christ and our God than they have up to this point, especially when it comes to other races. We pray for all the help of heaven in this time. And please don't let us get away from here without deciding positively and constructively for Jesus Christ. This is a very easy and convenient time for you, friend, to decide for Christ. We'll have staff here. We want to help you. There's no magic to walk into the aisle. But right now, some of you are ready right now. You've been ready for some time to come. We want you to come and give you that opportunity and serve you that way. Some of you are struggling with a decision. Why don't you just come pray about it? We'll be glad to help you.
but obey your God now. I'm going to finish my prayer. Tim's going to lead us to sing. And we'll do serious business with God then. Father, would you please come through with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this time, make all the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart acceptable in your sight. Because you are the rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come. You come. Respond to him and come. Jesus, hope of the name.